Hi all, quick correction I wanted to make. In this episode, I say a few times, I think, the Alliance of Clinical Educators. It's actually the Alliance of Clinical Education. So please disregard when I say it there, it is the Alliance of Clinical Education. And now back to the show. Welcome to the One Minute Preceptor Podcast, your resource for clinical rotation advice and tips to prepare for your externships in healthcare. Learn how to earn letters of recommendation, prepare for your clerkship, and excel at patient care from preceptors with years of practice. We interview physician educators in every specialty and clinical setting to discuss how to prepare for your rotation and improve your clinical experience. Here's your host and MedEd entrepreneur, Chase DeMarco. Today, I want to welcome Dr. Bruce Morgenstern, Vice Dean of Academic and Clinical Affairs at Roseman University College of Medicine and President for the Alliance of Clinical Educators. Bruce, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. How about you? Not too bad. I'm really happy that you're able to join me today and we can discuss some of the things that the Alliance of Clinical Educators do because I'm personally pretty curious about this and I'm sure some of the audience will be as well. To start off with, how about a brief introduction about you and where you are currently in your medical career? Sure. I'm by training. I'm a pediatric nephrologist, so I've been doing that for I don't know since before time. I think as many clinical medical educators will tell you, I almost got into the field of clinical medical education by accident. Um, pediatric nephrology is infamously an academic specialty, so you're always associated with medical students and residents and fellows, but that doesn't necessarily mean you become part of the educational enterprise. And I was fortunate to be assigned in Oh, 1990, probably, to become the clerkship director of the pediatrics clerkship experience when I was at the Mayo Clinic and the Mayo Medical School. So I got involved with clerkship education quite a while ago and then was able, fortunately, I was able to rise through the pediatric clinical undergraduate medical education organization, which is known as COMCEP. And I actually was lucky enough to become president of COMCEP. Through my relationship with Comcept, I became part of the Alliance for Clinical Education, and now I'm nearing the end of my term as president of that organization. So for the clinical setting, is it mostly in a university setting, or is there sort of a mixture? It sounds like you kind of wear a lot of hats currently. I've always worn a lot of hats. It's a little bit of my ADHD, I think. But for pediatric nephrologists in general, they are always at academic medical centers, whether they're actually formally affiliated with a medical school or not, I would probably say 95% are. So the practice is always at a, virtually always, at a um, tertiary or quaternary pediatric or children's facility. I guess that would make sense since it's pretty specialized and and would require Mm -hmm. a lot of uh, special equipment. Uh, What type of students do you usually teach? Is it mostly MD and DO or do you occasionally take on other types of students? I should take a step back now. Teaching is sort of sadly for me at the moment in the past tense. My job here at Roseman University's College of Medicine is to actually get our medical school up and running and accredited. So we don't yet have medical students. So I came up here about four or five years ago. All of my teaching sort of weirdly came to an end so I could work on a school. That sounds it's sort of non, it's almost internally contradictory, but it is what it is. (laughs) Um, So um, in, in my teaching, we worked with pharmacy students and um, advanced practice nursing students and PA students, as well as medical students, residents, and fellows. Okay. Quite a diverse group of students there. I wouldn't think that nursing students would be so specialized in that type of... Yeah. So so I was... 
tried to be clear, it's advanced practice nurses. It's the nurses going for their um, nurse practitioner degrees. And part of their requirement is to do some clinical experiences, and they can be very specialized if they, if they so choose. Okay, good to know. Thank you for clarifying. Can you discuss a little bit about the Alliance of Clinical Educators? Sure. So, so if you start, and God knows why you would ever want to do this, but if you were to start to look at any organization, every organization, every specialty, it's not even medicine, has an internal organizational structure in it. It doesn't matter if it's librarians or art historians or medical educators. Everybody's got some organizational structure because you need that. It's a way for um, support and advocacy, etc. In the world of medical education, there are people who are involved with basic science medical student education. There are people involved with pre-clerkship medical student education. There are people involved at the clerkship level and other clinical medical education. Then there are people involved with graduate medical education, which is residencies and fellows. And then there are people who've devoted their careers to continuing medical education. And every one of those has an organizational structure, but everything has an organizational structure. So humans seem to need that sense of community. And that sounds cynical. It's just, I think, a reality. There are then um, within the major core, as we like to refer to them, specialty programs in, in most medical schools, each of those organizations has formed some organization that initially started with the clerkships, but expanded a bit to include all undergraduate clinical education. So the internists have an organization, pediatrics has an organization, neurology, OBGYN, psychiatry, family medicine, I'm going to miss one, um, psychiatry, emergency medicine. So there should be eight. If I missed one, I apologize. The Alliance for Clinical Education is the organization of those undergraduate medical education organizations, if that makes sense. So we get around the table and we have leadership from every one of the individual core specialty undergraduate medical education organizations. Okay, I see. And I do believe these are listed on the website oh, if absolutely. the audience mm -hmm. wants to. For preceptors, since you seem to have a wide berth of experiences in this type of situation, what what do you believe makes a good or great preceptor within your specialty, within pediatric nephrology? It's a really fascinating question. If I were king of the medical education world, what optimally should happen is that all people who assume the role of preceptor will actually have a, an aspect of faculty development. And not all of us do. So you, you find some people who started life before they got into medical school as teachers. You know, they took some, they, they may have undergraduate degrees in education. Some of them have master's in education and they become teachers even before they go to medical school. And those people have a certain knowledge. And there's another subset of people who have an innate ability to just be good teachers. And that's part of being a preceptor. But at the end of the day, the real magic that is involved in a student preceptor relationship really has to do with understanding that there are a set of expectations that people, that both parties need to have. And a lot of, in fairness, and this isn't just pediatric nephrology, this is sort of my across-the-board horrible generalization. It's a bit of a stereotype, but it's true. Many of us grew up in a world where that management of expectations was not really established, and so we did our own experiences either in clerkships or subsequent experiences, electives with people who said, oh, you're with me this month. Great. Um, let's get to work. And there's no sort of establishment of what do I expect from you as my student? What do you expect from me as my preceptor? What, how are we going to determine if I'm making progress? What, am, what are we really going to get out of this? And so there are a multitude of mediocre experiences. And the good news within that is, A, psychologically, I think we all repress the mediocre episodes. And 
more importantly, what students come to value, and this is just a repetitive thing that's been going on since probably since before the time of the Flexner Report 100 years ago, periodically there's just magic in a, in a student-preceptor relationship, and the student becomes excited by the preceptor, and the preceptor becomes excited by the student's presence, and a career blossoms. That, in fact, happened to me. It's one of the reasons I got into pediatric nephrology, because one of my, uh, my preceptors, when I did an elective as a senior medical student a few thousand years ago, was just great in, in a thousand ways. But at the end of the day, we never really established what I was doing there. So my experience was really, in retrospect, sort of haphazard. It turned out that I was able to bond with one of the attending physicians there in a way that that sort of directed my career. But that was happenstance. It wasn't a planned thing. I see. I can uh, definitely relate to some of the mix and match experiences during my clinical rotations as well. And hoping that to some degree, this podcast will help to educate students on what to expect or how to approach a future preceptor that might not be that clear on their expectations. I think that's a critical issue as we've gone around um, trying to set up some of the community faculty for our medical school. And we've even spoken, since you and I both happen to be in Las Vegas at the moment, and we've spoken to some of the physicians in the community in Las Vegas, that many of them actually precept students, PA students, nursing students, and medical students from all over. It's It's been amazing to me how few of the physicians as preceptors really have a sense of what it is that even the medical school expects of the students, much less what the student expects of their experience. And then the the, the preceptors would complain to me about, well, that wasn't a very fun experience. I'm like, yeah, but what did you expect? And, <laughs> and the answer was, well, gee, I never thought about that. That really is the essence of what we do badly. There are other elements you and I make it into as time goes on. But at the end of the day, this is a management of expectations thing. For the students, of course, you guys are paying tuition, you really should get your money's worth out of this. But the preceptors are not always getting paid. They're doing it, many of them are doing it on a volunteer basis. They still need to understand certain fundamental aspects. And the first step is, what am I going to do with this student? What do I logically expect a student can be able to do at the student's level of, of training? And what then should I be having the student do so the experience is worthwhile for both parties? It, it's interesting to me how rarely that actually happens. I completely agree. And I think that's a perfect segue to the five-step process of the one-minute preceptor model, which is not something that I was ever aware of during my clinical rotations and only became aware of afterwards. So I'm not sure how many other similar types of models are like this for clinical education and uh, direction, but I found that this is a very simple one that anyone can implement if they don't know where to begin. Yeah, I think the issue though is the student would be hard pressed to get their preceptor to actually use the tenets of the one minute preceptor, but but very the true. one minute preceptor process is is a very well thought out and very well documented component of, of education. Are you do you know where it came from, by the way? I actually don't know. That's probably something I should look at. Yeah. So, so the history of the one-minute preceptor goes back to, to one of the giants of the field of medical education, sort of literally and figuratively, because I think he's 6'4", um, a gentleman by the name of David Irby. And, and he basically, with a, a number of his researchers, he's, he's a medical education researcher, did a qualitative and quantitative analysis. They basically went into a bunch of clinics and just watched what happened. And the one-minute preceptor was the distillation of what was already happening in the clinic. So for most physicians, if you're going to be a preceptor, the one-minute preceptor concept is completely well-known to you. It just didn't have a name. 
So what Dr. Irby and his colleagues saw, and it didn't matter whether it was a surgery clinic, an OBGYN clinic, a family medicine clinic, peds clinic, et cetera, the process was pretty much the same. And there are some issues with it, by the way, I'll come back to that in a minute. But essentially, the student would go in, see the patient, the, the attending physician might do something else, then the student would come out, and there would be a literally, at most, a five-minute interaction with the student. And one minute of that boiled down to the precepting. The rest of it was the student presenting the patient, presenting the history, a couple of focused questions on the part of the preceptor, and then they got into this one-minute preceptor thing. Where you, And I don't remember all the steps off the top of my head, but where the preceptor would say, all right, so what do you think is going on? And then get the student to make a commitment, come up with a plan, have a teaching pearl, and then go in to see the patient. And that last bit was about one minute of a five-minute encounter with the student or the resident. It didn't matter outside the patient's room. So it's not very intensive for any preceptor to implement this in their practice. No, 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 because it's the way they, it's the way almost all of us were trained at some point in our training. So let me come back though to the problem with the one minute preceptor. And I use that word problem in a very sort of loose way. The elements of the one minute preceptor, getting the student or the resident to commit and to offer up a plan and then for the preceptor to offer one pearl related to that encounter makes a ton of sense. On the other hand, part of what students and residents are supposed to do as students and residents is to learn. Shocking, I know. And so that little one-minute preceptor piece does give the preceptor a sense of the student or resident's clinical reasoning skills. I got through all this, and I think this is what's going on with the patient. A little, it gets the preceptor a little handle on what the student can manage because, or the resident, because the student or, or resident will say, I think we should do these tests or try this therapy. And it gives that one pearl that the, the preceptor can throw out. But at the end of the day, unless as the preceptor, you've watched the student or resident actually have their interaction with the patient, you don't really know what the validity of anything you're being told is. That's a good point. The, the, the analogy you hear from a lot of medical educators is the, the one-minute preceptor in some ways is akin to having a, or, and it's not the one-minute preceptor, it's that whole business of go in the room and see the patient and come back and talk to me. Um, it, it's the same thing as telling a student to you know go practice the piano as part of a piano lesson and then not have the preceptor present to watch either technique or listen to the notes or anything else, and then have the student come back and say, boy, that went really well. <laughs> How do you know? Yeah. So, so there are, you know, when you, when you think about what it takes to be a good physician, and nobody has real agreement on what a good physician is, I will readily admit. There's that skill of being able to talk to patients. There's that skill of knowing how to examine patients. Then there's the other part that then becomes apparent during the one-minute preceptor interaction, which is clinical reasoning and management. But if you can't get to the first two parts, if you can't actually speak with a patient or their family and you can't actually examine the patient, the rest of it's almost irrelevant. The one-minute preceptor was built on the almost fervent hope that the piece of with the resident or the student in the room with the patient actually went as the student then describes it. And the student needs to have a certain amount of comfort during the interaction with the preceptor before you get into the one-minute preceptor business when, you know, I as a preceptor may go, well, what about this or what about that or what about the other? For the student to learn, the student actually has to be honest if it didn't happen and say, well, I didn't do that or I didn't ask that or why should I ask that? I didn't know. Um, that's part of the learning experience that the student 
should be comfortable saying, yeah, I don't, that never even occurred to me to ask, or gee, that's completely an unfamiliar question. Why would I want to ask that? Or why would I want to examine the left ear when the patient's got a complaint of their right toe? You know, some of those connections the student couldn't or, you know, shouldn't or couldn't possibly know. And that's part of the education piece. That's that pearl that goes with the one minute preceptor. But the student has to be willing to admit that they didn't know or didn't do something. And that's frankly, for a whole bunch of reasons now, that's an awkward thing and a difficult thing for students. I think we've covered in pretty good detail the first two steps, which is step one, getting a commitment from the student. And step two, as you were just mentioning, to probe for supporting evidence to see why they came up with the answer they did. Are there any particular tips or techniques that you use for step three, which is reinforcing what was done well? See, that's part of the problem. You have to know what was done well. (laughs) Good point. It becomes relatively easy um, but I'm going to come back to another point about this in, in a moment. It becomes relatively easy to go, well, that was a pretty succinct presentation. Thanks. Or, you know, that was a that was a good synthesis of some difficult information. That doesn't happen very often. And I'll, I'll explain why in a minute. But it that's not a difficult thing to do. It just doesn't really help the student very much because it's not as specific as you would like it to be. The problem, of course, is in real time, trying to remember the very specific sentence, for example, the student said, it's they give their summary. That's hard to do because you're thinking about the points you want to make with the student as a preceptor. So you lose track of, you worded this kind of awkwardly. You might say it more succinctly or more clearly this way. That's not easy to do. The other real practical problem, I talk about this to many of my education colleagues and they nod in agreement, but I don't, I don't know that anybody's ever really published it. Shouldn't be hard to publish. It's not hard, I don't think, to get data. Most of us in clinical practices have a very absurd standard for our clinical performance. I don't know what other standard we could have, but we have a very absurd standard, which is we need to be perfect for a whole bunch of reasons. We as a provider, when we deal with our patients, don't want to make mistakes. If you ask any physician, physician's assistant, nurse practitioner, it really doesn't matter. Anybody who's sort of an independently licensed practitioner, what would define a bad day for them? Frequently, they'll say, well, I made a mistake. On the other hand, perfection is almost impossible. So, you know, that's a really difficult standard, but most of us hold ourselves to a personal standard of perfection. We therefore then lay over that standard onto the student or resident. Now, why we should expect the student or resident to be perfect I have no clue, but that's the standard we apply. So, and this gets back to why I said it's difficult for a student or a resident to admit they didn't know something to the preceptor because the personal standard for the preceptor, I I hold myself to the standard of perfection. Therefore, now that you're falling under my shadow, you need to be perfect as well. And so you say, I didn't know something, or you say something incorrectly, inadvertently, but quite sort of subconsciously, our opinion of the student or resident falls because they failed to reach our standard of perfection. That's a very difficult piece to to process through for both the, the preceptor and the student. And that seems to be exactly what step four is sort of focusing on, which is giving guidance about errors and omissions that were made. You sort of already covered that. It's a difficult... Yeah, no, but, it's, but again, you have to... Either I have to detect it or you have to admit it in the preceptor-student relationship. And it's not... Certainly, the latter is not easy because you don't want me to think less of you, which is crazy. And then, unfortunately, with the former, with me detecting it, if I detect it, depending on my day and my mood, it may really significantly impact my opinion of your performance, even though intellectually, I know with absolute certainty, you shouldn't be perfect. 
you shouldn't know everything I know. If you're doing a pediatric nephrology rotation, it took me four years of medical school, three years of pediatrics, and three more years of nephrology, plus all my experience to know what I know. How could you possibly know what I know? Yet, if you admit to not knowing something, that sort of makes me think, oh, geez, why don't they know this? Mm. It's a weird, it's a very strange system that, that has just evolved over time. And some of it just is normal human nature. It needs to be addressed overtly. It's the faculty development piece I spoke about way earlier. And then just for completeness, step five is teaching the general principle, or as you've called it, the pearl. Is there any particular guidance for preceptors on how to find that pearl? Or is it just something that they know from experience? It's sort of neither, actually. It's totally contextual because the pearl may not be anything that's unique to my field. It may be just a sequencing question for you know for you as you take a history or a, as you think about synthesizing it, do this. But that's totally in the, in the moment. You don't know, like I don't have a set of scripts of pearls that I probably do over the years, but it really depends on what happened in that, in that five-minute interaction that I can think of what the pearl might be. Okay. Now that we've covered most of the preceptor-based questions that I had, maybe a couple of quick student advice type questions. Mm -hmm. You knew the dogs were going to act out eventually. (laughs) It was bound to happen. For student questions, what do you expect from a student when they start a rotation with you or did in the past? What do I expect or what do I hope I actually tell the student? There's two different things. Um, and and, and uh, I know that's a it's a kind of a glib answer, but the expectation is based on the level of training. So if a third year student, or I've even had a, actually a second year student who had a selective opportunity and said, "Oh, I'd like to do nephrology," my expectations of a second year student are limited, and my focus then would be on pathophysiology, pathology, pharmacology. Um, you know, a third year student, if they're if they've already completed internal medicine or pediatrics clerkships, would you know, would be a certain different level of clinical skills, ability to obtain a history, do a physical, you know, so in an effort to better obtain history and synthesize it. And and it just moves forward. So by the time somebody's a third year resident, I would have a very different set of expectations. Again, the other part of that then relates to how I expect my time to be utilized in terms of caring for the patient. It's going to take more time and effort with a second-year student, obviously, than it would take with a third-year resident. So, you know, all of those expectations are, again, sort of very situation-specific. I guess that makes it difficult to keep track of for preceptors that have a lot of students at one time, especially if they're all in different levels of their education as well. You know, quite frankly, that's the magic uh, that people have to try to maneuver uh, and navigate during inpatient clerkship experiences, because you may have now many medical schools are having clerkships in in the second year. So you may have students in the second year, sub-I or acting intern students in the fourth year, PGY1 residents and PGY2 or 3 residents, and then you might have a fellow um, if your program has fellowship training. So you've got to figure out a way to conduct rounds so that everybody can actually pay some degree of attention and the senior people aren't too bored and the junior people aren't completely lost. Inpatient setting, that's people who can do that masterfully, I am completely in awe of because I've never, personally, I don't think I've ever been able to master that. It's much easier in some ways on an on an ambulatory rotation, because typically when you're doing, for example, the interaction that leads to the one-minute preceptor piece, it's a one-on-one. So I know whether I'm looking at you if you're a third-year student or a third-year resident. So it's a little easier on the outpatient side. Very good point. What about for students that want to excel in a rotation with you? 
any particular things that uh, that stand out that really would put them above the fray, I guess? Boy, that's a really difficult question to answer. It comes back to one of the points you raised earlier. And I think, and not all preceptors are this way, but increasingly we're training preceptors to get to this point. One of the things somebody needs to have the day one discussion about what do we hope to get out of this this relationship. Um, and if a student were to sort of come in prepared, this is now very personal, this is me. If a student were to come in prepared and go, listen, Dr. Morgenstern, here's what I'm really hoping to get out of this relationship. I've done a little bit of reading about pediatric nephrology. I really hope to learn this or this or this. That would be spectacular. Then they could screw up a thousand different ways, I think, during the rest of the experience. But, but I would have gained like that sort of you know, first day impression that makes me think, oh, all right, I can deliver that. I can help this student meet their expectation. And I probably would. Whereas if the student doesn't lay out what they're hoping to get out about it, you know, get out of the experience, you know, it's going to be a little more haphazard. And then it's just, did we gel as people? Which is a horrible way to to sort of establish a relationship. It's good in some ways, obviously, but it's it's not a preceptor, preceptee, you need to learn some stuff kind of a relationship. It's a, hey, we went out for, you know, we went out and had a bunch of coffee and spoke about sports. That's all wonderful, but it has nothing to do with pediatric neurology. Very true. I suppose if it was a, an easy question, then we wouldn't have so many students wondering these types of questions when they're starting a new rotation. Yeah. And again, it does come back though to the one thing where we have created systems that make it extraordinarily difficult for students to admit their weaknesses. Because the other thing that would be great at the beginning of a rotation, it would be for a student to say, you know, I'm done with my clerkships. I'm a senior student and this is an elective, but I really still am uncomfortable about my whatever, this physical exam skill, this history taking skill, this. If a student could actually feel comfortable outlining their perception of their deficiencies, then we could work to help them. Um, from what I know about my colleagues in the in the residency education world, it doesn't seem to be helpful to the for a student to ever admit that they might not know something. It, it seems like it's actually almost damning a student if if I were to write a letter after you and I were to have a preceptor preceptee relationship and and write somewhere in there that you learned a great deal during the rotation. It sort of implies that you weren't good to begin with. There, no, you should learn a great deal. I don't, like the fact that you were able to absorb information, synthesize information, and apply information should be something that uh, that somebody would want to see about you. But it's actually, unfortunately, in the in the current system, almost a negative. We're in a, a weird world that I think will evolve to a better place because we really should be encouraging students to be, you know, self-reflective and saying, "Here's what I really need to work." Sounds sort of like the uh, focusing on the journey, not the destination type of mentality. Mm-hmm. Exactly. If a student wanted a letter of recommendation from you, are there any particular things they should do or say to inquire about that? No, they just need to ask. The rule about the rules about letters of recommendations is that, you know, the question should be, would you be willing to write a positive letter or a strong letter of recommendation for me is really the way the question should be phrased, because I might write a letter of recommendation, but it might not be strong. And that's not necessarily a good thing. The other the other thing about having been a medical educator now for close to 30 years, there there is sadly an unwritten code in letters of recommendation that not all preceptors actually know the code. And so they, the, a preceptor might happily agree to write you a strong letter of recommendation, and then they may inadvertently not. Again, it's a matter of trying to do good faculty development to, for the preceptors so they understand what that 
that unwritten code is. Wow, I wouldn't have even thought about that. But yeah, depending on what your experiences are in something like that, you could think that you're writing a really strong letter and it's subpar. <laughs> We've reached this interesting world where there's been a, an inflation in superlatives. So superlatives that were really strong superlatives for student performance when I was a student are now mediocre superlatives. And there are more superlative superlatives. Um, and if you don't know the right one, you can you can sort of categorize a student in a way that you think is great as the letter writer, but is actually not. It's a sad statement, but like there's been great inflation at the undergraduate level and great inflation at high school. When I went to high school, it was impossible to have a GPA of greater than four. But now high school students can have a 4.3 and college students, I think, can even have over four. I don't understand if the scale goes up to four, but that's been the sort of inflation that's happened. And it, you know, parallel to that, there's been an inflation in superlatives. Wow. You really have to stand out then in new and better ways every year. Exactly. Are there any resources that you would recommend for students interested in getting into your specialty or rotating with you? There's a far greater need. For, now, again, very specifically for pediatric nephrology, there's a far greater need in the United States right now for pediatric nephrologists than there are pediatric nephrologists or even then there are pediatric nephrologists in training. And there's also a sizable percentage of aging pediatric nephrologists who will retire in the next decade, probably. So there are plenty of potential jobs. As a consequence, any student or resident who expresses an interest will be amazingly seized upon um, by my colleagues around the country to work with them, because anything we can do to get to encourage people to get them interested in the field so that they might consider it, we think is great. Any parting thoughts for students? Yeah, I think I think for for students, the most important thing when you when you get into clinical experiences, and this includes the clerkships, even though clerkships should have clearly identified goals and objectives, when you actually get to work with your preceptor, you need to find out what their expectations are. You really need to have one of those day one conversations that says, "We're going to be working together for the next X period of time. What do you expect of me?" And that's if you don't get that sort of stated clearly. You never know if you're going to be hitting the target. All right. Any thoughts for physicians that are interested in becoming a preceptor in your specialty? Yeah, well, it's generic. I think, I think if you want to become a preceptor of students, um, pretty much every medical school in the country now has a series of faculty development programs. Um, and many of the specialty organizations have faculty development programs. And so you either in your community or at one of your national organization meetings should take advantage of those that you really understand how to do a good job so that you and your student actually make the most of the time because there is a time commitment. All right. Perfect. Well, Dr. Bruce Morgenstern, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me.